Welcome to Esoteric America, a podcast where we tour the strange, mystical, and esoteric pathways hidden beneath the surface of America. Join Mark, Tara, Roman, Chad, and a new local researcher each episode as we dive into our country's diverse regions, states, counties, cities, towns, neighborhoods, parks, etc., leaving no stone unturned as we unravel the cult knots that tie history, culture, religion, all in with fringe elements that you may not have realized were at play in your own backyard. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are back again on Esoteric America. And you know where we were for the past month. We were in our home state of Connecticut, and uh, we will be off in California for the next few episodes. So uh, welcome to this month's Esoteric America Traveling out west. You know who I am. I'm Mystic Mark. Next to me, of course, is my girlfriend, Tara. Hi. And we've got our buddy, Roman. Hey, who? The Rising from the Ashes podcast. What's up, Roman? Hey, man. Just having another lovely day. Enjoying, Enjoying life. Soaking in this full moon. And, of course, the great Chad Stemke from... The Stargate to your home computer screen. Here yes. he is now <laughs> with us for another awesome journey. And uh, I guess I'll start by asking you, Chad, because I know the question, the answer to the question for Tara and Roman. But t- Chad, have you ever been to this part of America? Because I haven't. I've never been to California. Yeah, absolutely, man. I've made two pilgrimages out to the West Coast. Uh, when I first graduated high school, the first thing I did is I bought a van and me and my wife took a, well, girlfriend at the time, took a cross-country trip all the way. To our destination was the Redwoods Forest and Hey Ashbury in San Francisco. And we followed nice. the dead, followed the Grateful Dead concerts out there and then followed fish concerts oh, shoot. back home. <laughs> <laughs> so... That, that was the first, you know, high school pilgrimage. And then, yes. You know, uh, 90s, I took another trip out there. And I, we actually lived out in Oregon for uh, about a year. So I was out there exploring for a year, you know. So I, I guess it's a little bit of experience out there in the wow. woods in the West Coast. Wonderful. Wonderful. Nice. And Tara, you've been to California before, right? Yep. <laughs> I was only there for a week, though, and I was um, 
stoned and drunk most of the time, but actually it was, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. It was a, um, a really fun experience. Uh, my girlfriend and I went there from, we flew into San Francisco and took a, and drove down to San Diego. I don't, uh, really remember where we stopped along the way. Did you guys drive on the I-5 or did you take the coastal highway, highway one? The, the coastal highway. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. That's always Yeah, that was drive. sweet. We actually, yeah. yeah, we camped alongside of, uh, Big Sur National Park. That was an adventure because we ended up breaking into some place and, <clears throat> and camping <laughs> there, but... Um, I went to some rave in the desert in the Mojave, but yeah, that's going south. So, but yeah, and went to a sound healing in, um, the Integratron in oh, the, in the Mojave oh, desert. Nice. So oh, cool. I, I accidentally threw something in the, uh, Integratron and in this slideshow tonight. <laughs> oh, shoot. You know, it's not Northern California. Cool. It's yeah. Such a weird thing. It's, <laughs> it's, it's strange. Well, it's a portal, mm. obviously. Well, in in many <laughs> in many senses, you what do, what is this place? Are you talking about the Emerald Triangle or a thing in that part of it's, California? What is it like an amusement park ride? No, it's dude. It's like this, and I have a slide on it and a really great article. Um, that would be an entire That's, almost episode on its own. But there's this thing called the giant, it's called Giant Rock, and it's a huge crystal. I mean, it's a fucking seven-foot story tall building crystal that fell, and it cracked, and a huge crystal. And it's just like pure, um, like really good mineral inside. And so um, this guy built a apartment underneath of it, and <laughs> it's a whole thing. And he had like a cult following of UFO heads and uh uh, euphonauts like living out there and many, many, uh, sightings. Uh, and like I said, it's not Northern California. Uh, but I threw it in there anyway. <laughs> yeah. That's it. That, um, I didn't know any of that. Uh, when we, yeah. I, when we went to the, the sound healing, um, but it, it came up in, uh, synchronistically and Mike's Mike Juan just mentioned it in his time video a few a few weeks ago I think which is interesting too that you should be bringing it up randomly yeah you know well we're all in the synchro mystic mark that's we're just marching down the synchro mystic highway yes exactly what did they do well <sighs> I have never been, but I'm there in spirit. Uh, I love cannabis, so I've always loved the Emerald Triangle, even mm. though I've never been there. Yes. So uh, I'm excited for this, you know, month. Maybe a little preemptive. We probably should have waited for uh, 
April. We can hit a nice 420 episode, but that's okay. We'll do something special for 420. Maybe we'll do like Ann Arbor, Michigan, or another like little secret pothead place because Emerald Triangle is is definitely like the crown of you know, cannabis culture mm-hmm. in the United States. Like it's where uh, when cannabis was federally illegal across the board, it's where it was rugged and fertile enough for people to get away with growing cannabis and that's the little i know but i hope we get into that more so uh over the course of the next few episodes but i i imagine roman you do, have uh, denver is the mile high city mm. um because a mile high club we could do the mile high club on 420 <laughs> we could we could <laughs> i have one friend in denver actually two I love I love Denver. I've been there twice, and uh, it was definitely a life changing trip for sure. Like, uh, oh yeah, I went there actually with the uh, my friend Jay, who I started my podcast with. So uh, Jay and I became friends in like 2015 or 14, and then somewhere along the way. He moved out to Colorado, and I drove him there along with some other friends, and uh, then we went and picked him up when his little semester abroad, well, not abroad, but his semester in the West was finished. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun, but uh, we're not talking about Colorado today. It's funny. I actually had a very synchronistic trip uh, during that trip where we tried to go to California, but something crazy happened to our car, and we had to turn around and go back and we never made it to California. So in a different alternative universe, there's a Mark out oh. there who's been to California without a broken <laughs> vehicle. And, and yeah, so, uh, but no, not yet. And even more, I'm, I'm excited for this because everything that I've learned about California with the lens of this kind of mindset, you know, we've been there once before with the Inland Empire episode. I'm excited to see, you know, what we what we have up in the north corner. I'm a little laggy today. I got to close a bunch of my tabs. I just made a a little graphic for the for the bottom of the recording. But anyways, Roman, you have a slide for us, right? You have some stuff you want to present. You want to take it away since this is your neck of the woods, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. Um, yeah. So we're focusing on obviously like as much like little prehistory and pre-Columbian in California as possible. Um, before we edge our way into, um, the gold rush, which is what established California. California was established as a state, uh, two years into the, uh, the gold rush itself. That's when the government made themselves, uh, because it was just directly after the Mexican-American War as well, and so it was this really just it was it was a it was a long battle uh, to get to get California under the wraps in an American government sense, and um, yeah, so like um, it's funny the timing of the gold rush is very very interesting. It's a huge thing, and today I'm mainly focusing on a lot of the indigenous. Um, genocide that happened just to like just to bring to light of the of of the massacre that happened and and the treachery that happened to the people here um in california was so bad it was so bad during this time it was in it was it was really dark period actually um despite all the money people consider the gold rush itself to be this really 
you know, booming time and there was so much money made and people were getting rich and businesses were starting. And that's when America started to really have a big uh, lavish turnaround because billions of dollars were, were being found, right? Gold mining all over. Um, but there is a dark side to it. Um, and, and that's where we're going to get into a little bit. So um, I figured it was really important, uh, especially since we do talk about obviously like the native indigenous culture on the show. I think it's, it's a good, good way to start off with Cali. So um, let's get into it. I'm going to share the screen here. Biddly boop. Root and do. Um, let me hit the button. All right. Are we up? Are we, are we live? Yeah, it looks great. California. No time party. <laughs> right? A little Tupac, a little Tupac. So um oh, yeah. we're, we're, for the sake of the main uh first part of the uh presentation, we're calling this from Beijing to Sacramento. And this picture here is what, what they call the East Bay Mystery Wall. The East Bay Mystery Wall is what we're looking at here. Um, you know, one of the mini maps showing California as an island. It's been debunked. It's been, you know, conversed many times over. Um, we won't get into that necessarily today, but it's a fun photo. Um, so Northern California is known as the home of the giants, right? Home of the, the redwood trees, the tallest and biggest trees in the world. Biggest plant that exists is the redwood trees, the giant sequoias and the redwoods. Um, they're two different trees, but they um, are hard to tell apart unless you know what you're looking at. They both have red bark and they're both massive. And they're very old, ancient trees that have seen so much more than we have ever even dreamed of seeing and hold the consciousness of, of all of us as the trees are the lungs of the earth. And we are grateful to be there and with, with the trees. Um, and so there's a lot of druidic uh, resonance here in the in the redwood forest, right? Like the, uh, the trees are like antennas of, of conscious communication. And that's why the druids held them at such a high regard in their magic and stuff. Um, so there's a lot of giant skeletons obviously found. The archaeology of Northern California is really interesting as well. Um, there's hundreds of prehistoric fossils. They were discovered uh, all over. This, what we're looking at here, is discovered in the Mokulemi River watershed in Calaveras County at the East Bay Municipal Utility District. Uh, and they found a bunch of different, uh, different bones uh, amongst the fossils of mastodon, um, camels, rhinos, and tortoises, big tortoises, found all around California, actually. Um, huge tortoise shells. And I'll go to this link here. Um, he's uncovering a, a, a fossil um, in the Calaveras County. They call it a, uh, a gom fossil fossil. I'm not even sure really what that is, unless you guys know are aware. It's a little too uh, far zoomed out to read. Can you hit like control scroll on the computer and zoom in a little bit? Uh, yeah, I'm, so I'm not on my Mac. Aha, but here we go. Ah, okay. A Gomphothair fossil. Huh. Yeah, I'm sure we could look that up. Maybe that's a, that's probably a creature if I had to guess. It's probably some type of creature, a piece of that. Maybe it's an era of dinosaurs. 
if this jaw found the same jaw that we were looking at. Um, here's a depiction of what Northern California was looking like with the fossils that they found uh, yeah. during the Miocene period. Um, these like special giraffe horse looking things. You got all the wild boar. Northern California has a bunch of wild boar and pigs um, and elephants. There's, there's mastodons and elephants during this time. I mean, obviously all North America really had a lot of that uh, going on. Mm. Um, a gomphothere are... is a wedge beast. That's what that means. A wedge beast. <laughs> yeah, it's like a type of elephant that had a big wedge-shaped jaw. Oh. Wedge, what's, peg, what's, pin, what? or joint are, is the word for gompho. Say it again. I said the, the word gompho in this context means wedge, pin, peg, or joint. So it, it was a gompho there as a type of elephant. That had just like a specific, like big, big, huge jaw. Right, right. Like, mm. I think most elephants actually have a, a pretty large jaw, but not like this. <laughs> not like this. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, I think it's pretty significant. Then later, when we look at the um, some of the gold rush period, why Whoa. there are some uh, analogies to can elephants. I, can I uh, share my screen and show what the gonfo here looks like real quick? Because yeah, it's actually pretty well. Actually, I should just send you a link because uh, the last episode we did, I had to do so much editing because all of my screen sharing didn't get recorded because when I screen share, OBS doesn't pick it up. And I had to like redo all those segments that I did with you guys where I took you through the Google oh, really? Earth thing. Oh, shit. I basically just listened to it and just copied what I was doing by hearing what I was saying. So if people were wondering why that didn't sync up in the last episode, that's why. Um, but yeah, that's what a gompho there looks wow. like. It has this huge, no, that's a like different type of jaw. That looks like, yeah, it looks like the, the tusks like grew, like maybe this was a, a type of elephant that elephants evolved from, you know, like somewhere, not that I totally subscribe to the theory of evolution, but given what we're told about evolution, it kind of seems to me like, uh, you know, maybe this is how elephants got those huge tusks because creatures like this once roamed the earth where they had these big, huge teeth going over a lower jaw like that. I mean, that's kind of crazy looking. It looks yeah, like a combination I mean, of a rhino and an elephant. Like it could just like charge forward and stab you with, <laughs> with those things, right? And well, and like like the article said too, um, you know, they had rhinos that they found. They found rhinos, camels, and elephants. So there's probably all these like these different hybrids. But the thing is, you know, with our modern day archaeology, I think as we all know. Uh, that a lot of uh, a lot of things are controlled in, in the sense that like you know uh, it's a very specific branch of science uh, yeah. so you know this bone specifically is like it's got a lot of cast on it so they got to speculate a little bit you know to make the rest of the body mm. uh, but I mean I mm. I, I, I mean in, you know in, in the conversation of, of evolution and, and leaving that I think I think it's fair to say that there's 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 definitely evolution that we experience as a as a species and uh what if they were all like um experiments it's like genetic experiments mm -hmm. or something 
instead of evolution or maybe that's what evolution was too i mean there's a conscious goop out there that that we're so malleably connected to that it's some sort of experience experiment happening pretty sure zachariah pretty sure Zachariah Sitchin writes about that uh, in his books being like the Atlantean theory and part of why Atlantis as a civilization uh, got too big for its britches is because they were doing all this genetic Mm -hmm. testing and doing things like uh, creating chimeras right I forget if that's I think it's in like the king's list Sumerian's king's list or something like that Mm -hmm. one of those ancient documents ancient texts that talks about that hmm. good point tara well, and also you know in sitchin's books he also says that we are genetic experiments as well for you know made to do our, our duties and jobs right uh, i i love it I, I that's my favorite that's my favorite realm of reality to to ponder on i really do uh yeah I, I i'm with it. you so on I'm that totally with it Hmm. Um. So, what else you got? Oh well, let's go. Well, here we are. So yeah, so you know, obviously, we like we said, but there's been there's been a lot of um, there's been a lot of fossils found, and it's really cool because where they find these fossils is on these specific mineral lines. There's these certain maps, these veins that were found throughout the gold rush that um guess what lo and behold the natives have known about these these veins of gold for for many many years many many years and but the thing is is that the purpose and the intention behind the the mineral is completely different than the european point of view and the and the the just other culture point of view right the uh well from what i could find uh is that gold was it was, it was obviously an incredibly precious and beautiful metal, but it just served different purpose um, in the culture. So, but we'll get into that um, going into uh, the redwoods more and how this might connect to this belief that Scott Walter uh, kind of pulled on a thread on his show, America Unearthed, that there uh, obviously was a connection between ancient China and the West Coast at one point um, due to specific Chinese explorers and these different remnants found. Um, and this this uh, you know, talk of the continental drift uh, being the timeline being askewed from that and there being a major deluge in between that wasn't as long uh, as long ago as as we're led to led to believe um, that potentially uh, you know these islands that are in between the Pacific chain, the uh, between the West Coast, um, all of the Polynesian Micronesian islands and the coast of Asia were uh, potentially you know let less water, more land bridges basically. Um, so you find the redwood trees in very specific places on earth and they are in california and there's a large community of redwood trees that are the same genus that are connected to china and these ancient valleys in china which leads a lot of people to believe that at, you know they share this main vein of 
they're on different tectonic plates technically, but they they were like connected at one point to share these same different types of plant genetics here. Um, the redwood trees have existed along California's north coast for almost 20 million years, but these ancient giants weren't limited to just the California coast. Studies done in 1940 showed that 25 million years ago, sequoia trees covered much of the northern hemisphere, including England, Western Europe, as well as parts of modern-day Russia, China, and Japan. The sequoias that live in California today, along with a small grove in the Hubei, Hubei province in China, are the last living sequoias in the world. The redwood trees that live on the northern California coast today can reach more than 320 feet in height with trunks up to 27 feet wide and can live for more than 2,000 years. In fact, some coastal redwood trees living today were alive during the Roman Empire. The current tallest known tree in the world is a coastal redwood named Hyperion, discovered in 2006 in a remote area of the Redwood National and State Park, purchased by the government in 1978. Hyperion stands at just over 379 feet tall and is believed to be seven and 800 years old. Wow. I love that there's uh, this kind of botanical, like forensic record that we could use Mm -hmm. plants to see where humans have been over the course of history. I just had Dr. Narco Longo on my podcast yesterday and he Mm -hmm. was totally fascinating me with this concept of the orange and how these oranges may be uh, the golden apple from the Bible. And he thinks that maybe Florida always was like the origin of the orange and i asked him you know what about china because china has the mandarin you know the mandarin orange Mm -hmm. they Mm -hmm. have their own form of oranges and uh they've been lots of citrus all over the americas according to some researchers and he was like yeah i believe that and showed me a piece of pottery that they found off the coast of florida with what looked like asian designs on it so mm-hmm. yeah this is this is definitely like a realm of uh research inquiry like going down the route of like botanical you know, plants fruits specifically the types of plants that humans you know engage with uh they could tell us a lot of things you know i, I i'm glad you brought that up with the sequoia i mean it's sad to hear that there's not many left in the world but uh hey Hug a tree, plant a sequoia, right? Absolutely. I mean, especially with all the wildfires that are happening, you know, um, that 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 forest restoration is is an absolute must. Luckily, there's a lot of really passionate people that live in that part of the country that are very into that mm. um, and passionate about saving the redwoods. And um, sure. you know, grateful every day for people that are, that are actually out there doing that stuff. And the more we can help, the better, right? Because like I said, they're the lungs of the planet, right? We lost a bunch of the Amazon a few well, years ago, you know, and we just kind of forgot about that. Well, if trees are our lungs of the planet, what are what are mushrooms like? The the gut of the planet, the stomach, the the kidney, what, the liver. I mean, I, I think maybe more like they're like enzymes, right? So they're kind of like a stomach in a it's way. Like the fascia between your bones Ooh. and your muscles, you know, that thing that needs to get the moved nervous out system. And, and rolled out. Yeah, so not just the biggest trees in the world, but also some of the biggest mushrooms that exist. The Chantrellus giganticus 
uh, is the biggest chanterelle mushroom, uh, and it lives in the redwoods, specifically close closer to the coast. Um, and they're huge; they're massive. They can get up to be like seven pounds uh, a mushroom for a chanterelle mushroom, all edible. Mm. Um, and and yeah, so the reason I'm bringing all that stuff up, right, is it's fun because. You know, you have all this giant lore around Northern California, right? The San Francisco Giants, California Giants. There's, they, you know, they were an island at one point, and it was the the home of Lemuria, the capstone of this ancient society that existed. And um, definitely want to get to more. I, I'm not. I don't even cover Shasta today. I think we should de- dedicate an entire episode where we all look into things on Shasta because Shasta is so wonderful. Um, one of the seven wonders of the world. Um, you know, one of the seven chakras of the world also. It's, and um, you know, there's talks that the giants live inside of Mount Shasta and inside these cavernous parts of California, and so. There's a bunch of giant trees, giant mushrooms, giant rocks, um, and giant mountains. And it's along a very volcanic active fault line, right? We have the very active super volcano over here. Um, and what do we know about alchemy? But, you know, Fulcanelli is the home of the volcano. So, um, and what we learned on our uh, interview with uh, our episode on Inland Empire with our buddy telling us about Masonic caves um, and some Vulcan type of worship that happens in these uh, secret societies back in the day, that um, volcanoes are very important um, in some uh, esoteric circles. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. big mushrooms, fun stuff. Wow. Oh, here we are. We're at the giant rock thing. Uh, this is a picture. Ooh, before you Ooh, jump picture. before you jump to that, I just want to give a shout out to our buddy whose name is Zach, who joined us on that episode of Inland Empire, right? Shout out it to Zach. Killed it. Zach did so good. Zach's a G and uh we'd love to have him back on the show. And anybody yep. for that matter, because there were some people in the comments who were from Inland Empire and they're like, Oh, he forgot this, he forgot that. So one of the really cool things I just want to point out about the fact that we're doing this on a sort of monthly uh basis by, you know, location is that when you tune into this episode, the first episode that we're doing together, the four of us, uh, leave a comment, email us at esotericamericapodcast at gmail.com and tell us that you want to be on the show. Even if you know you only have 15, 20 minutes worth of information to share, we'd love to have you on. We want to include as many people as we can. And the fact that we're doing it, uh, you know, bi-monthly like this gives people time you know like to see ahead of time like oh they're talking about my place let's do it right so folks don't be shy hit us up and you might be able to join us on the show next week or the week after or the week after right yeah that's i mean that's how we started the show we wanted to talk to we want to talk to y'all we wanted you guys to come on Mm. so um Yeah. yeah i love that um, and I yeah, love Zach. Yeah. I love that episode. I actually shared that episode just last night talking with somebody um, who's from that area. I was like, "Oh shit, you're from huh. you're from Southern California." I was like, "Cause that episode went. It was so good. Um, a lot of good, a lot of good little gold pieces in there." Sorry, Tara. What oh. were you saying? I don't. That's just. That's cool. <sighs> that's what I was gonna say. Hell yeah, man! <laughs> All right, let's check out this. Uh, can you guys see this or are you guys on the other slide? 
We could see uh, something that says giant rock space people and integration. It, it looks okay. like an article. Yeah. So let's just get into this just a little bit. So we're talking about California. We're talking about gold. We're talking about minerals. We're talking about fossils. We're talking about huge petrified trees that are also found because when you have the biggest trees in the world, you're most likely going to have the biggest petrified trees in the world as well. So the mineral content of California is incredibly special. So living there for many years, um, I found so much quartz. Um, I mean, mountainsides are quartz. This whole country's got quartz all over, but there's obviously something very special um, with the California quartz. It has a lot of gold in it, and it has this thing that people talk about of there just being a time void. It's a vortex. You know, you get lost in it. It might be all the doobies that are being passed around because it's a cannabis-friendly place, um, but also at the same time, you're you're magnetically connected to this this volcano, this active volcano, uh, gold-emitting frequencies that California, Northern California has, and so um, this is a huge crystal that we're talking about, and it just tumbled down one day. It tumbled down one day. And it was a huge spectacle back in the day. And um, now, you know, when you say tumbled down, uh, we see kind of like a rock pile-looking structure to the left. Was this up top on a mountain, like a, a rocky mountain to the left there, and it rolled down basically? That's the story. Wow. Now, yeah. for folks who 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 who, all right, let me just explain something. In a watch, like a time, like a watch, right? You have a little piece of quartz, right? You guys are all familiar with this. And there's a little hammer or pin that strikes the quartz and it creates a piezoelectric effect that effectively works like a battery. So if you have a giant piece of quartz that falls from a cliff and lands on the ground, what if that has like a piezoelectric effect and maybe it doesn't just, you know, last uh you know a limited amount of time because it's so huge right like I, I wonder how many times that little pin has to hit the quartz to power the watch and if you could extrapolate that you know from the dimension of a tiny little quartz to mm -hmm. the size of this massive boulder and the and the velocity and the force of it hitting the the surface of the earth it must have sent like ripple effects through this area maybe that's why there's this sort of like vortex feeling like what peter shampoo has sensed or ha chad here has sensed in his local area these sort of like vortex points hmm. i i mean that's what people i mean i feel like yeah if you're gonna split uh that big a piece of quartz just like snapping like that it is probably because of because it just it just cracked one day. Oh, so I'll read this and see what you guys think about this. Um, you might so yes, zooming this rock in a rolled bit. off of here at some point. Uh, it ended here, but this this story is about when this rock split, and they discovered like this inside. Uh, this rock just kind of mysteriously cracked one day. Right. So on the morning of February twenty first, two thousand, at eight twenty a.m., an extraordinary event occurred in outlying Landers, California, an immense boulder of igneous quartz monazite uh, formed some 65 to 136 million years ago, cleaved a considerable section of the boulder came crashing down, revealing a gleaming white granite core. 
This erratic, aptly named Giant Rock towers some more than seven stories high, weighs in at 25,000 tons or more, and covers 5,800 square feet in its original form. In years before Giant Rock mysteriously split, this apartment-sized monolith achieved widespread notoriety, according to the Unsubstantiated internet accounts, the ancestral Serrano and Chimehuvi people conducted spiritual ceremonies at Giant Rock, which during only the chief was allowed to touch or be near it. By the start of the Great Depression, an eccentric prospector would tunnel beneath it and build his home. The boulder's next tenant would claim that a friendly extraterrestrial visitor had provided the design plans for the nearby domed time travel machine known as the Integron. New Agers have described Giant Rock's Hold location on. as a spiritual vortex where the Earth's ley lines intersect, thus channeling mystical and psychic oh. energy. Hold on, hold Perhaps. on, hold on, hold on. Let's not just glaze over that last sentence there. <laughs> the boulder's next tenant would claim that a friendly extraterrestrial visitor had provided the design plans for the nearby dome time travel machine known as the Integratron. So hold on. This is this is his apartment as a time travel machine or he built something else next to this. So I uh <laughs> I don't know about about the the vort or the uh the dome that he created. I know that he built his apartment underneath the rock. You uh, see this? Yeah, yeah. That's underneath this rock, Chad. Well, yeah, the Integratron is a totally separate structure. Uh, if you look it up, you should be able to find the structure. Oh, it's cool. a dome, circular structure, super intricate. So, so, and yeah. So he was living under the rock. An alien visited him yeah. and gave him this idea for a, a sort of time travel structure. Wow, that's fascinating. It kind of reminds me of like a 1950s yeah. sci-fi movie when they go right. into like a lab, like the evil doctor's lab, and it's like all inside like rock caverns, you know? Like look at him standing there like that. Wow. Well, it's within that time period of... Uh, Roswell, you know, it right. is in that time when like we had like a bunch of the moon stuff cooking up, you know, NASA, right? The Great Depression, gold uh, or not gold, uh, the wars. So this is a very interesting time period uh, noting on that. And it's like this isn't just anybody um, that moves here. Uh, you know, he was making lots of money and he was a, a, a prospector. Um, so I'll read this thing from Popular Science in 1940. Uh, an air-conditioned stone palace complete with a private airport is the home of a California prospector who built it all with his own hands at no cost to save his own labor and a little dynamite. Jobless, in 1931, Frank Kritzer came to the desert 100 miles southeast of Los Angeles on a prospecting trip. While staking out gold and silver claims, he camped under the lee of a tremendous boulder. Tall as a seven-story building, and later conceived the idea of burying beneath it. With pick and dynamite, he worked until he had dug out the apartment, measuring 24 by 36 feet. So, it split years later. Ah, okay. So probably he, due to his dynamite, right? He burrowed underneath the rock and, and compromised the structure of it, and then the huge piece fell off. <laughs> Ah, okay. So this giant uh, rock has been sitting there for a long time then. It didn't just like fall and hit the earth anytime recently. Okay, so, huh, interesting. 
And and like we said earlier, there is only a, um, when the natives were in that area before they were basically decimated out and cleaned out of the area, which was very popular uh, during the 19th century of California um, to rich of the indigenous peoples. Um, but, you know, I, I just suggest people look into it if they're interested in the Integratron and uh, and the rock. But we'll get back into Northern California. Well, show um, show us. A, I sent you a picture in the chat. Oh, there it is. There's the Integratron. Cool. Yeah. Let's just <laughs> let people see that because that is definitely that not an rock. everyday building. That wasn't. There it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The apartment. George Adamski that created it. If anyone want to mix it up. Wow. Okay. So he's interesting. Uh, I've heard uh, Walter, not Walter, uh, Adam Go Rightly, I think, has written a book about Adamski. Uh, and he was kind of connected to some of those Discordian type conspiracy theorist mm. guys and a lot of the UFO, uh, you know, culture back then. Mm. But wow, this is like sleeping inside of a UFO in a, in a sense, kind of like a temple even. Yeah, it's more got, it's got the classic kind of temple de de designs here. So here's the, the rock as it's cut open. Hmm. And where is that? This is in what they call Lenders, California. No, I mean, uh, is it the wait? So the rock is underneath the Integratron. No, it's next to it. Near it. Or it's, no, it's near. Uh, the Integratron is just nearby. But oh. so there's people that paint this rock for whatever reason, you know. Uh, People feel inclined to go and paint it because there's graffiti on it now. Hmm. It's just really sad. Yeah. You know, like like this. Look at this. Yeah. It's not even good. You know, yeah. I, I mean, mm -mm. I don't know. It's just like defacing. Like, look at that. Yeah. People camping. Right? Uh. Hippies. Hippies. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, anyways. On to the next slide. So we'll get to the East Bay mystery walls. Like I, I was saying that Scott Walter on his America Unearth show, which is pretty good. Um, you know, you got to use your discernment while watching these these shows. Um, but I, I found it to be really uh, helpful in my uh, my journeying into the research of this area because I'm, I'm very interested in this this just talk of the Chinese culture coming over here because what it ties into the whole Tartaria realm and theme, right? Um, so that's really fun. It's a huge rock wall that spans um, actually in multiple different parts of Northern California. Um, the longest part is four miles in length that they've found, but some people say that it breaks up and then is continued for 10 miles. Um, and it's actually strewn all throughout uh, California. Some of the theories are that it's uh, it's just basic, you know, cattle wall, uh, agricultural fencing, markers, borders, dividers for their property. Um, looks like some of the same rock walls that you see in Ireland or that you see in Argentina or Connecticut. Um, yeah, or New England, buddy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So it's all over. It's not super crazy, um, but there was some evidence that led people to believe that this was a Chinese built wall. Uh, and that's interesting because, you know, just in the mainstream narrative of history, there was 
you know, no Chinese over here, especially before the Europeans. Well, like I said, use your discernment when digging through these historical topics. Um, but there has been a, some Chinese archaeological discoveries that have uh, shown us some sorts of evidence towards this. Mm-hmm. Um, Why would so, the yeah. Chinese want to do that? What's that? Why would the Chinese want to do that? Um, so some of the belief is that, uh, that they, that they had like some ancient ancestors or like this land of Lemuria that this, this ancient civilization that had homage or they, they had connection and family and lineage in these parts of America and they were connected to South America and their cultures cross correlate and, and some of these, uh, different like burial rites that they would do, um, you know, with lining, uh, just like the ancient cultures of, of Egypt, South America and in Asia where they would have, you know, cinnabar mines underneath the pyramids, uh, that is found in Egypt, Mexico, in China, and they would have uh, mercury lined underneath there. So they had a lot of these same different types of rites, which means that they were at least corresponding uh, in some way, fashion, or form. So they they went to China. Scott Walder had went to China uh, and showed some of the uh, Chinese researchers uh, and scientists some of the some of these rock walls and said, "Like, do is there a connection between these walls?" And they they said that it was very likely. So, like I said, you can use your you can use your own discernment on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I would I would say you know, the Stonewall thing, that's that's interesting. But I think the compelling reason why the Chinese are maybe put into that uh, as the likely candidate is because of related evidence more than just like the wall itself. Because, I mean, there are so many examples of those types of stone walls across America and even Mexico, Central America, mm-hmm. South America. So South America, it, yeah. It, yeah. It, is, it is like, you know, uh, not exactly similar to those, but how different can you get when you're working with, you know, field stones uh, roughly exactly. the same size? And also, I imagine they might have, you know, maybe... Uh, some other reasons to think that maybe there were some uh, shards of pottery found in the mm-hmm. in the wall. I mean, there's so many things that could uh, point to them. But yeah, for people who are skeptical, uh, the Grand Canyon. There's been evidence of Chinese artifacts in the Grand Canyon uh, in Guatemala, which I was just learning again from Dr. Narco Longo. Uh, in Buddhism, we have Guatama, and then we have Maya. Guatama, the Guatama Buddha, uh, his mother is Maya, right? Mm-hmm. Or Mala. And uh, you have in Mexico, Guatemala, right? This like Guatamaya going on. Uh, you know, so Narco likes to do the sort of uh, etymology research, you know, and looking into the meaning and overlap with words and sounds and ph- phonetics. So, uh, you know, maybe not the most concrete evidence, but definitely something to to sit with, you know, let it sit in the back of your mind and wait for more evidence to appear, right? Well, there's some evidence here um, in specific pieces, places of Northern California 
And the reason why I thought that this was really significant to bring up and kind of the thread that I'm trying to trying to build some sort of platform on right now is that the not only the natives um, that uh, knew about these gold mines and these gold threads, but I think that there's a potential that they were trading with the Chinese because they had a better relationship than they did with the Europeans. Um, they understood each other more. They had a better rapport. So there was a potential that they were trading partners a lot more than the Europeans because they, what the conquistadors did is not trading. They never traded, right? They never negotiated a lot of times, right? It was, it was basically, um, you know, that's, that's mine and I will have it. And um, so they're like in Hawaii here where I'm at, ancient Hawaiians used to trade with Japan and China. And there's um, a lot of Hawaiians that would actually rather be a part of uh, that part of Asian culture than American culture. Um, so you can go to say that there's a potential that Native Americans would have better rapport with the Asian culture as opposed to the European culture. So we get into some. Um, well, you know, to, to second that again, I don't mean to cut you off, but I'm just like brimming with thoughts right now because. Uh, Graham Dunlop from the Grimerica show recently recommended a guest of mine who I'm going to be talking about tomorrow or talking with tomorrow. We, we scheduled the interview very quickly and he is a doctor, a reverend in Newfoundland. His name is Reverend Ryan, Reverend Dr. Ryan. And he's basically uh, gathering evidence to show that the Chinese were in Newfoundland, Canada. So mm. uh, they may have traveled through like the Arctic Sea to get mm -hmm. there, or maybe mm -hmm. they just, you know, uh, transverse the whole, you know, southern passage there around Chile and Argentina. But yeah, there's definitely evidence. Or the northern land bridge through Russia and Alaska is basically connected and touching. Like the land masses are basically. Mm. Well, but think Almost. about the think about the geopolitical consequences of this conversation. I mean, this is definitely something that the American government government would want to keep under wraps, right? Because uh, if if maybe the indigenous peoples of the North America, you know, form some kind of political alliance with China and said, "Hey, actually, China was here first. Here's all the evidence. So we're actually Chinese citizens now." You know, I mean, that's like totally speculative. But it's it's definitely more realistic the further back in time you go. Uh, in mm -hmm. like the 1800s, there was a whole uh, Chinese Exclusion Act that was passed by President Arthur, and it was largely, uh, you know, sort of lobbied for by people in California who did not want, you know, all these Chinese laborers in their city for whatever reason. I think it was mostly, you know, economic competition, racism, and, you know, maybe some other factors. But yeah, the, there's definitely like a hidden political story with the Chinese-American relationship. I mean, not to mention opium and the whole opium war saga. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's constant East versus West, you know, the blue versus red, left versus right, like, uh, you know, and I don't know. Yeah. Like I, I definitely have more of a, uh, a vibe with some of the, some of the, uh, the Eastern philosophies in a lot of way. I mean, like I love my Polynesian brothers and the Hawaiian brothers and this, this culture out here, you know, uh, it's, it's something that seems more rooted in, in nature, uh, and, sure. and the indigenous way is more rooted in nature. And we, so 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I'm just get into this here. I'm going to get into this here. <laughs> we found Chinese, uh, Chinese remnants uh, in Bodega Bay um, and north, north of San Francisco in Drake's Bay and then also in Chico in the Sacramento River, which is where a lot of the main part of the gold rush was. So you have Chinese remnants in this very, very heavy gold area. Well, we know that China knows how to mine for gold. We know that. Um, they've been very, very advanced metallurgically speaking, and, and their culture has been, um, been doing that for many years. Oh, Gavin Menzies. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So uh, (laughs) let's get into some Menzies, man. I love this guy. Mm -hmm. Another piece of evidence is the possible discovery of a medieval Chinese-style junk buried under a sandbank in the Sacramento River near Chico. Rumors of a Chinese ship have circulated in Glen, California for 70 years, ever since two farmers hand-boring a well said they found some bronze artifacts that someone somehow authenticated as Chinese armor. Is this like the... Oh man, I'm sorry to cut you off. Is this like the basis for the Goonies? Is this what we're talking about here? Is that what the Goonies <laughs> found in the? I mean, or was it Sir Francis Drake? I don't remember. The Goonies was uh, Astor- filmed in Astoria, Oregon. Okay, so not California, but either way, the Goonies <laughs> is going to be in the title of this episode because that's going to catch a lot of people on YouTube. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Love it. Uh, so two local men used a mag- magnetometer with detects disturbances in Earth's magnetic field to show the presence of something shaped like an 85-foot-long ship with its bow pointed upstream. Subsequent drilling turned up fragments of wood, which had been carbonated to 1410 and identified as a cut from a ketelira, a Chinese evergreen tree unknown in America. Also near Chico, California, the Gali Nomero language spoken by Kunkau people is similar to Chinese. The Kunkau people have been descendants of Chinese sailors, may have been descendants of Chinese sailors. They are noted to have celebrated the same festivals of burning paper as the Chinese. On the eastern side of San Francisco Bay, mysterious stone walls have been built by the Chinese. These strange Californian walls are all up and down the hills uh, behind the East Bay going from San San Jose all the way to Carquines Straits. They also continue north over the Sonoma Mountain up through the wine country. The walls form neither animal pens nor do they appear to be fort-like, but it must be said resemble a miniature version of the Great Wall of China. The original land records of the Spanish landowners, Peralta, Vallejo, etc., lay no claim to have uh, claim to having built them. In fact, they asked the local Indians about them, and the tribe said that they were walls were here when they got here. The standard story is that the walls were built by the original white settlers in this area to clear fields for grazing and farming. However, these walls run in the most impractical places as well as along some of the hilltops. Some run up ravines you can hardly walk up, let alone build a wall on. There's no explanation for these mysterious walls, save perhaps that they were built by ancient Chinese visitors. Dude, and that's, I mean... Didn't I say that when we were talking about the New England stone walls that they just look like they're mm-hmm. like built in places where you wouldn't be able to farm anyways because of just yeah. the landscape? I mean, who knows? Maybe they had methods to, you know, 
grow crops on yeah, angles. It just doesn't make any sense. Like, you know, well, you're not going to stop a mountain goat from going on the side of that anyway. Well, know? here's the thing. It doesn't make sense, too, in the point <clears> of construction. Like, it seems like a difficult thing to pull off. But, wow, I just got struck with another thought about, you know, we have this whole conversation. is very contentious. is very, you know... Um, deep, deep wounds, deep scars here with slavery, but there is talk amongst the, uh, you know, black American community that they are possibly not African American and maybe more so Native American and Mm -hmm. that slavery sort of mixed everything up and uh, just gave everybody this propagandized idea that they were all just brought over on boats from Africa, which, you know, did happen in some cases, but considering that China is much further away than Africa, like, you know, they were sort of passing by Africa on their way to America, but China's very far. And we're told that the Chinese were used as slaves the same way that people Mm -hmm. from Africa were. Uh, We're told that the Chinese were used to build the railroads across the American Wild West. Well, if they were putting all this money into the railroad, like, how did they afford to to ship all these people across the ocean from China? I mean, was China involved in this? I mean, there's got to be some records, and I guess why I'm speculating this is to say or suggest maybe these people were already here and they just got kind of rounded up and made slaves, and because they didn't speak English, they couldn't write their history in any English books at the time, and, you know, they've just been forgotten and thought of as, you know, these sort of immigrants who were used uh, for, you know, uh, the the Industrial Revolution. Maybe they were actually here much longer than we're told. I mean, again, just speculating, but... It seems kind of like there there's something there. Yeah, I mean, personally, it, it kind of it kind of got me looking back at because I I left out of the Tartaria realm for a bit, but I think I think what a lot of the internet kind of speculates with the um, with the boomage of Tartaria is is very grandeur. Uh, but a lot of it I look at as like a blanket statement for like almost like an Easter egg of like, just look over here, just look over here in the East, you know, and you will find maps that have it. Is it the entire nation? Is it just, you know, one horde? Is it all these, these buildings, like look into sacred geometry, which are the basis of like Freemasonry and like secret societies is like sacred geometry and these things. But that's what is coming out of this boomage of like the Tartaria movement but I'm thinking of like if there was just more of a, uh, a a Chinese stronghold back in the day, or an Asian stronghold, or like a you know that's it's obviously something that got that hidden up, uh, covered up during the Protest the, the movement of the Church, Protestant Reformation, the founding of America specifically, mm. um, being a big movement of that. You know, I some of the numbers that were documented on how many Native lives that were lost during the um during the beginning of Europeans getting here was over four million. Uh, and this slide gets into it right here. I mean it's even um, it's it's even ahead. larger than that. I think there were forty four million Native Americans uh, mm. during the time of Columbus's life and uh yeah, so four million I, I think that might be maybe specific to a certain area or maybe a time period. 
but yeah, like that's that's definitely really difficult to uh, to imagine, you know, living in the time that we live in. But we're told that these these things were sort of uh, commonplace back then. People were mm-hmm. were made to be more uh, barbaric, right? I don't know how much I buy into that. I think really it was propaganda and people believing, you know, that one person was better than the other because of, uh, you know, some sort of religious identity. Right. But, uh, but Um, wow. Maybe, um, you said that my, they use the word Maya in association with the stone walls. No, no, no. But, but why, what, what's your point about Maya? And I was thinking maybe they um, they use the the walls as um, like to create an illusion of obviously of like se- separation like between the different um, maybe that's just like like a border all it was yeah like to create like um um i don't something with identity to like for protection or something like a divinity circle (laughs) could be yeah could be one thing i I thought of because you you brought up tartaria in that sense about the walls Maybe the reason why you have this sort of like destruction going on in a lot of these early West Coast colonies where you have these big floods that come in and destroy everything. Maybe the original settlers used dynamite and blew up all these stone walls that would Mm -hmm. have protected people from floods. Because out here, I mean, on the East Coast, that's basically, you know, what people create stone walls now for in modern times you'll use them to dam rivers or you know uh create a a raised surface so that you know if there is a flood your house is above the water table right so yeah i definitely can see how maybe maybe there's like a chinese civilization here so to speak i mean i'm going to use that word a little loosely right maybe it was more like a colony a trading colony right and maybe they were like, okay, we don't want people to know about this. Let's, you know, destroy it. And, uh, you know, once they destroyed a few things, it just all flooded away, right? I mean, that's the whole conversation with Tartaria is that there was this whole civilization of people more advanced than we're told in a place that we were told was just wild and, and unforgiving when, in fact, maybe it was a lot more inhabitable than, than they're telling us. I mean, that's, that's, that's my line of thinking personally. Um, I think that, I think that America is, I mean, it's been so, I, cause if like that flooding and that, like they, they talk about up here, you guys see where my mouse is. So I lived in Portland for a long time too. And my home is just right up here. That's where like, I grew up for the large part of like my, uh, my 18 years of, of childhood was like right North of Portland here. And we have all these rivers running off, but they, you know, they say that um, just a few hundred years ago, these glaciers came through and carved the mouth of the Columbia River, scraping the sides of Kalama, Washington, and and right in here. And this is a, it's also a major fault line. Um, and so I, 
you know it's tough it's it's really tough and and plus like i'm it's because like i have like these intuitive thoughts of how how these things went down and then you have these multiple different archaeological uh, outlooks and it's like you have to use your own discernment as well as intuition on on these things also as well as listening to multiple different theories you know um but i i mean at the bare minimum the central part of the country uh has been usable for a long time. I definitely believe that. Yeah. Mm. Um. So what's next, so, yeah. brother? Okay, so we're going to get into some more of the, the numbers uh, of of some of the money that was made during the gold rush period and and some of the um, the money that was paid to get Native lives out of the area, literally um, bills being passed to, to form uh, independent militias, specifically to pay anywhere from 50 cents to $5 a head of Native lives taken, or um, let us just say non-American lives, anybody that's not on the militia that might be... Uh, stepping into uh boundary zones it's kind of we'll look at the bill here in a second but i wanted to say this um this little piece here is as we slowly glide into looking at the gold rush let us think about the native people to this region we'll do our best to honor the lives lost during this atrocious period of human history adding the counts of lives to the many numbers lost during the rise of the church over four million in north america alone not to mention the conquistadorian takeover of south america and the knowledge of mineral deposits was grandeur by the natives they just had a very different use in connection with these minerals and the europeans that didn't revolve around greed and lust So um, this is a search from the United States Gold Bureau itself. As we have discussed many times previously, money that is not based in precious metals tends to lose its purchasing power over time, often completely. Tragically, while many Native American population knew where gold was, few valued any it for anything. There were some that later found it useful to trade with settlers, but most viewed it as nothing more than a shiny piece of earth. It was native Californian Indians that helped create the 1848 gold rush without realizing the impact that would happen, while often involved in leading prospectors to places with high concentrations of gold. The ending result was horrific for the local Native American population. The gold rush brought in thousands of prospectors from the eastern United States who brought unfamiliar diseases and unfriendly attitudes toward the native Californians. Death and disease, or death from disease and maltreatment led to the loss of approximately 240,000 native lives in California as a result of the gold related expansion westward. While they had knowledge of and access to the gold for hundreds of years, they did not think twice about it. They valued it no more than the settlers valued seashells until they discovered it was useful to trade with. The owner of Sutter's Mill, where the gold was originally found, previously paid his workers with 10 coins that could only be spent at his own store. That is how all fiat money ends up sometimes, spendable in only a few locations. Gold and silver, however, are accepted worldwide in any language and nearly every culture. Gold talks and people listen. Today we can see a repeat of some of the mistakes of the past 
fast being made by modern Americans. There is an abundance of gold and silver coins currently available and being produced by the U.S. Mint for Americans to use to protect their financial future. But like the Native Americans of old that knew it was there, too many today do not avail themselves of the opportunity. Gold has been moving east into the hands that appreciate it. I, I, so I put that clip here because I was just like, damn, United States Gold Bureau goes hard. Like that. I mean, what do you guys think about that passage? Yikes. They do go hard. Um, they value their gold. <laughs> yes. Um, yes, they do. Like, this was like a big uh, slap in many people's face. Like, slap in the face to everybody. Sounds like it was just, it's a very pretentious point of view um, from the United States Gold Bureau. You know, <laughs> like, I mean, they honored it a little bit, but these numbers are even way, oh. low. these numbers are so low. <laughs> yeah. So low for Native lives lost. You know, it's, uh, yeah. So this is this this is the main kind of narrative that's being fed and pushed onto society, you know, through through um, organizations like this. Wait, what? Well, the kind of like the fact that there even is a gold bureau is like a slap in the face, isn't it? Because like they hoard it all, I guess, or something. Yeah, well, uh, I wish I brought it with me, uh, but a Tracy Twyman, you know, rest in peace, OG Tracy. Um, she wrote this really great book called The Money Grows on the Tree of Knowledge, where I'm learning a lot more about uh, the specific history of money down to an alchemical uh, point, um, you know, bringing in some of these ancient philosophies um, that is printed in the American money system and everything. And, um, and how we transition from being a gold-backed currency, uh, where basically all the, when America became bankrupt and we had to forfeit all the gold and was forcibly taken away from everybody and then traded with paper notes. And that's when everything really kind of shifted. Mm. Uh, she explains in the book of how that itself is an alchemical process of turning some uh, nothing into something, the, the creation of paper money being uh this like turning a base metal into gold into this this usable form uh like a mental uh form of form of alchemy uh, and yeah huge huge <laughs> i love trace twyman's work uh anyways that was a little side tangent there huh Interesting. so uh there was so many like you like the numbers are all over the place when you try to look it up on the internet of how many actual native lives were lost you will find all the different numbers there's so like every number is almost different on every source so uh but when you start to look at the old paper clippings the uh the bills passed in that area um, and some of the receipts that they found about paying off these independent um, independent tracks of uh, of militia, paying them off five dollars per head. Just looking at some of the receipts, the numbers start to add up, add up, add up into into the millions. Uh, 
that's just what they were telling us unless that itself and those receipts were a tax writable type of thing and they were doing money fraud you know i mean either way um an act concerning volunteer independent companies passed in april 4th 1850 the people of the state of california represented in senate and assembly do enact as follows Whenever a sufficient number by the provisions of this act of the citizens of any one county in this state subject to military duty shall wish to form themselves into a volunteer or independent company, it shall be the duty of the judge of the county court of such county to cause some suitable person residing in such county to open a book in which he shall enter the names of all persons able to perform military duty who make make application to become members of such company, and it shall be the duty of the person so appointed to give notice by publication in some newspaper somewhere. So it just tells us that, like, you could band up all your buddies and give them the right of the American military, and you have to do exactly what they say. Hmm. Hmm. Um. So these areas, hey, uh, that's Nathan, by the way. Um, Nathan. He's been, I don't know if you guys have heard, he's been playing lovely guitar outside. He's a fantastic guitar player. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, I heard something. So this area, if you guys go into Netflix, you'll find this uh, documentary called Murder Mountain. Ooh, sure. Murder Mountain is oh, about that. the cannabis area. Well, Syncretically speaking, this is also a graveyard of many indigenous cultures, right? Or the indigenous peoples and also the miners that have died, all the bloodshed that has happened here. It has never not been a murderous mountain. Thus, despite all of the beautiful nature that is inevitably there in front of us, due to the greed of this society, we are stacking bodies on top of bodies. And due to just the natural way, I guess, of human existence from uh, our versions of history, how we're told how much bloodshed has happened over the, over, the, over the centuries and over the thousands of years, that, that we're just stacking bodies on bodies. But anyways... Um, there was uh, over 300,000 native deaths have been calculated. Now, this is just calculated receipts that they found paying these independent militias that were being set up because they they were basically signing out these tax papers that were saying that if you uh, can give us a head count of how many people you get, we'll pay you anywhere from 50 cents to $5 a head. They found these receipts in the 90s. And so the calculations were made that they spent over $50 million to pay the independent militias during this time and over 300,000 native deaths at $5 a head. And that's at $5 a head and not the 50 cent count. So if you were to take it into 50 cent, it'd be even more. Um, these voluntary groups, these independent militias were mainly made up of gold miners a new military company under the above title has been organized down in the secret diggings. This company is yet in its infancy and its members are all practic practicing miners, settlers, and various ranking members of the U.S. Army. This here is uh, Benjamin Madley, Ph.D. at uh, UCLA. He is the Associate Professor of History. And this is what he has to say on the topic. Um, he says, I think it's not an exaggeration to say that California legislators established and then funded a state-sponsored killing machine. 
with the aim of capturing or killing all California Indian people. So let's go back real quick. A, I, and I, I screenshotted every scene of this video I was watching with this professor because he was hitting all these notes and they were, it was blowing my mind. This, he's a professor at UCLA, professor of history. And he says that California was literally funding to get every native person off of the gold mines anywhere out of the area. So they had to scour, they had to hide, and they were being brought into basic internment camps or schools, um, and they were being murdered. So, yeah. Yeah, that's... Uh... And... That's for that's all for gold. Yeah. It's all yeah. for gold. Yeah. All for gold. One place. This is one. This is sad, but there, when I was reading kind of some of these same stories, there's one place where they said the Native Americans were actually safe, and that was when they were enslaved by the land barons or the lumber barons. Some of the Romy mentioned the Sutters and Sutter Mill. And uh, John Sutter, he had, I think it was like 600 Native American slaves. Whoa. But they were safe on the encampment from these militias. And they made that sound like a, a good thing. <laughs> In these stories I was reading that if they were enslaved, they were better off, which is just, you know, disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's that's insane that yeah that is so sad and it's like yeah. i said it's a very dark period so dark Walt's also like you know when you look at old alchemical text or in in antiquity like gold is it represents the sun right it's the it's the metal of the sun so it's like well, it's a bright and shiny period here's the thing roman i mean you have this whole crusade quest to you know control the economies like going on all the way back to the times of uh, Christ in the Roman mm -hmm. Empire, right? So, I mean, I was just talking to Dr. Joseph Farrell. This interview will come out this month. It's a really fantastic opportunity. We talked about the Templars taking their gold over to the New World and possibly hiding it here. Um, but, yeah, wow, this is... Mm -hmm. This is interesting. I wonder if they, you know, uh, used some of this as a cover story, so to speak, mm -hmm. and that they are actually rounding the Native Americans up in an attempt to take their gold or maybe, you know, mm -hmm. some, you know, find out where their mounds were, things like that. There was this, uh, this is kind of south of where we're focusing, but in Emeryville, which is like right there near Oakland and San Francisco, mm -hmm. um, there was the Emeryville Shell Mound, which was a sacred mm -hmm. burial site for the Ohlone people. And uh, it had a temple, a burial ground, and uh, it was about, let's see, um, it was. they say it's massive, but I'm trying to find the height of it here because... It's pretty astounding to think that they just went and destroyed it, you know? I mean, mm -hmm. they just went, yeah, 350 uh, feet in diameter and 60 feet high. So it was a pretty big mound. And, uh, yeah, evidence that there's this sort of, 
contiguous culture spanning both coasts. Because as we learned about in our look into New England, there's a bunch of shell mounds on the coast mm -hmm. here. So. so just to get into that a little bit, because I, I know we're going to um, my buddy, Casey Starfort, I asked him if he wants to come on this month. Um, who does he does all San Francisco um, stuff? I think you guys might have. Do you guys know Casey Starfort? He's been him? on my show, Golden Gate Starfort Command. Yes, yeah. I asked him if he wanted to uh, do it, and I, I wanted to obviously bring it by you guys first. Uh, but I was thinking we could do an entire San Francisco Bay Area because that is the home of the Gold Rush as well. So during one of these shows on the month, that um, would love for him to be able to come and share a lot of his findings on ancient San Francisco. But what what I uh, found out when I've done uh, multiple San Francisco voyages of trying to find the truth riddled throughout that crazy occulted esoteric town, <laughs> that is nuts. I'll say that at the bare minimum. And it's gone through many shifts and sways um, a city that you could consider rising from the ashes uh, of its own uh, many, many transmutations throughout, uh, throughout history. San Francisco is very interesting. Anyways, mm. that was all ancient shell mounts. Those were shell mounts. That was the hub of the native meeting points. That was where all these tribes would go. There was so much food. There was so much fish out in the shallow waters of San Francisco Bay. That whole bay was so shallow that you could walk out for almost a half mile into like this, this oceany, uh, rivery water. And it was like this perfect mix of, of water that it just all the salmon were go there. And it was a hub of food, um, for the California natives and through the building of San Francisco and the city, they basically extended all that out and they built San Francisco on this water. So when you go to San Francisco, you go down to the Bay and you will see this, you know exactly what we're talking about. Um, but a lot of people don't know when they go to San Francisco, one of the busiest cities in the country, um, that they are walking specifically on ancient shell mounds when they're walking the basic streets of San Francisco. That entire city is built on mounds, on shell mounds, and that's all that it is. That's all that it was. It was the hub. San Francisco was a city before it was the city. It was. It's a syncretic takeover of mm -hmm. native land, um, and it was the home of the 49ers. It's San Francisco 49ers, the home, the city of the gold rush. It was where all the bars were being built, lavish bars. Um, and then that's why when you go and you see this beautiful architecture there that Basically, um, uh, th they say that they were trying to make San Francisco into the New York of the West Coast. They wanted San Francisco to be the the sister city of New York City of the West Coast. It didn't work out how they wanted because I think there's a lot more, uh, you know, ancient energy going on there. Uh, hopefully, there's some good spells cast or something, you know, to like mm. trying to like you know, but there's so much money being made in there anyway. Well, uh, pairing that, Valley, pairing that, that too, so. with the quartz uh, conversation that we were having earlier and the whole, you know, giant rock near the Integratron, uh, shells, seashells have quartz in them. So in a sense, uh, mm -hmm. shell mound is kind of like a giant 
quartz electric mound. mound too, huh? And these these people that were found buried inside of a lot of the mounds in this area of California, Fritz Zimmerman and his encyclopedia, which I should say was sent to me by a very kind gentleman on my website. If folks are so inclined and kind, they can send books and contribute to the library. Uh, nice. using the Amazon store link and uh, it just sends it to me. But anyway, shout out to that guy. Uh, I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but Fritz Zimmerman writes that they found these uh, Neanderthal type uh, peoples, right? That's how they describe them, but they had a different shaped skull than a traditional homo sapien. And they're found buried with like quartz crystals, which is interesting because uh, there's a few different books that have come out over the past 10 or 20 years that talk about Neanderthals having this sort of uh, spiritual um, culture that revolves around sort of nature. And one of the things that they find often buried along certain groups of what they're classifying as Neanderthals is quartz. So. Mm. And it's a conscious consciousness portal, man. Quartz is it's an information, you know, holder. And Liquid so that's really, 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 really interesting. We're going to have to dig into that on the next coming up episode. So that's going to be really fun. Um, I'm just going to get through. I'm just going to get through these last little slides here. Um, we're almost to the end. And I just want to paint out some numbers for you guys of how much money was made during this short amount of time. And then how it was all taken away and given to the Federal Reserve, basically made and then taken away almost instantly. Um, so from the from the time that like gold was supposedly first discovered uh, in 1799 in North Carolina, or no, sorry, the first gold that was the first wor like worthy amount of gold was in uh, the the Reed Farm, North Carolina, which is. I mean, the name itself, the farm of reeds, you know, uh, plays a word on, on a lot of stuff. But um, the first documented occurrence of gold was in Virginia in 1782. From that time, all the way up until 20, uh, to, uh, 2019, they they found, I think it did the math. It was such an unfathomable number, you guys. <clears throat> uh, it was like, on average, they were finding uh, 450 uh tons oh wait what was it yeah yeah 450 tons in california during the height of the gold rush and so uh one ton of gold being 65 million dollars okay so 450 tons times 65 million in 18 1850 um so yeah, here you go. 45 million per year at that time, which estimates to be about $3 billion a year today. Um, just year after year after year after decimating, decimating the indigenous culture as they do it. And just soaking it in, getting fat, getting rich, staying drunk at the, at the saloons. <laughs> like alcohol was a big part of this. Mm -hmm. Setting up bars and taverns was a big part of this, to, I think, to keep people shaded and, uh, you know, and keep people kind of like yeah. focused on those lower states of being, um, keep you know, to some extent. Yeah. 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 The distraction, early distractions. 
from that stuff. Um, yeah. Hmm. So the from yeah. Oh, go ahead. So they they made the they 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 had people going into the the bars um, to distract from the our to keep them from the from all of the money that they were making off of the gold. Is that what I you're mean, saying? Oh, well, just like, it was like, it was, you know, you're going and you're like busting your ass all day. And like the California sun, central and Northern California is it's supremely hot. It's super hot out there. It gets a hundred plus, you know, and mm-hmm. you're making money, but uh, you know, like you're only making pennies on the dollars of what the, the guys who are, are actually making the, the real money. And so, right. you know, I think it's people would just go and just get hammered and uh, they, they, they would have all these bars set up. And that was like one of the first things to be imported into the towns was this food and alcohol. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's a classic, classic lesson to be learned with these gold miners too. 99% of them, didn't get rich. One percent of them might have found someone got rich, but the classic lesson is the guy who sold all the shovels and the picks, and the pickaxes, he got rich every time. Right. And it was the same for the gold rush, and we'll find out later. Somewhat same for the green rush. We'll talk about. Yeah. Uh, just important to point that out. Whether you're lucky nice. or unlucky, exactly. you need you need to go visit the uh, <laughs> the guy who sells the tools at the hardware store. Otherwise, you can't be a miner. That's a great point, Chad. Wow. Uh, my friend said that in the, for the music industry as well. He's like, yeah, you could try to be a mainstream artist, or you could be the guy who you know, uh, work like books in their shows or like works like on the side of it because they're going for the gold. You're just there. They're paying you for their services to get, you know, to help them. Yeah. Some of these guys were selling boots for $450 uh, shovels for upwards of a hundred dollars because they knew they could and people were going to fucking buy it. Mm -hmm. And so they were caking into money. Yeah. It's hilarious. This book is pretty good. It's called American alchemy, the California gold rush in the middle class culture. Um, It's, (laughs) Definitely uh, single-sided, in my opinion. <laughs> Printed in Hartford, uh, Connecticut, nonetheless. Yeah, it's um, it was kind of a fun read. I couldn't read it for too long. I was like, okay, I, I get, I get where we're going with this. But I pulled some serps out of the book. Um, they had these miners' ten commandments, which are laughable. Uh, but there was a, there was a lot of secret societies that were being formed um, because you had the odd fellows and the masons that were there. And they were uh, setting up big mines. You know, they were putting up big camps. They were bringing in a bunch of good food, and that was, you know, their specific uh, their specific camps. But other people were creating other secret societies, and we're gonna. I, I want to get into more of that later of some of the uh, secret societies that were formed. But um, the miners themselves were all kind of banded together, and especially when they had these independent militias, right? So they would form different. Uh, little mini armies basically but they had these these 10 commandments which like i said are laughable but since we're talking about elephants at the very beginning of the conversation i uh i wanted to read this very first part of this because in the picture of the 10 commandments there's a black elephant um that's a part of the 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 very first part of the commandments so i'm going to do it my in my great narration voice here a man spake these words and said 
I am a miner, wandering from away down east to sojourn in a strange land. And behold, I've seen the elephant, yeah, verily I saw him, and bear witness that from the key of his trunk to the end of his tail, his whole body hath passed before me. And I followed him until his huge feet stood before a clapboard shanty. Then with his trunk extended, he pointed to a candle, card tacked upon a shingle, as though he would say, read, and I read the miner's Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. You think that was an actual pack elephant that they used for, like, pulling goods? I mean, there were elephants. We we talked about the circus. We know they had elephants uh, in America at that time. Maybe they used them for, like, uh, you know, work the same way they do in India. I actually couldn't find anything on it. I was trying to, but... Now that you're saying this, I'm getting some bells ringing from our boy uh, P.T. Barnum, yeah. the railroads. Yeah. Uh, and there's this uh, this elephant clan um, that is like, it's like they call it, I didn't put a clip in here, but it's like the highest echelon of Danish uh, society is part of like the elephant tribe. Huh. Um, so there's like something tied here. I think it's, I think it's cryptic. There are Asian um, elephants too. In my opinion, that black elephant there looks more Asian elephant. But you could tell because of the ears sort of slope down towards the side rather than jutting out. But uh, if it is an Asian elephant and there were Chinese people here, who knows? Mm-hmm. Maybe they. I mean, they got the they got the elephants across the Atlantic Ocean. Why couldn't they get them across the Pacific Ocean too? Right. So. I don't know, maybe they only took babies and brought them on. <laughs> I don't know how big these ships were to bring all these elephants over for the circus, but they definitely didn't take them up by train or airplane. <laughs> and I bet you those elephants don't cross those Chinese stone walls either. That's why we got those walls. <laughs> yeah, wherever they went, they brought uh, the Chinese elephants. Well, Roman, we should uh, maybe leave it at this and maybe begin here uh, in our next episode and, and you know, st- maybe... Oh, are we at the last slide or do we have some more? No, no, it looks uh, there's like there's five some more. more slides. Okay. But, yeah, we are coming upon an hour and 30, and uh, yeah, we don't want to keep Chad too late. He's got work in the morning, uh, as did Tara and I. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely brought us down uh not a rabbit hole but maybe a uh, miner's hole uh, here mm-hmm. now a miner with an e m i n e r's hole um and yeah so i i think we if we should we should maybe pause here and uh let the audience know obviously uh you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts if you want to tune into the show on the go uh you can listen to the show on youtube or rockfin check us out there and watch the show um roman's got his own podcast rising from the ashes uh with his co-host dan danunaki and chad can be found at remind me the name of your website chad i always mix up detroit stargate and stargate detroit Yep, chadstemkey.com. That's it. I why, How did I not know that? That's, that's <laughs> way say, easier like, to remember. Chadstemkey.com. <laughs> and if you're interested in more about the Chinese uh, explorers in America, I've actually conducted 
uh, six or seven interviews with a gentleman named Lauren W. Jeffries. He's the author of uh, The Sacred Count, and we've talked a bunch about this. He has a whole uh, story that he told me about the Chinese emperor in 400 BC sending a fleet of ships here to map out the North and South America. So folks can sign up on my Patreon to hear all those conversations with Lauren. And, uh, and yeah, uh, I guess that's it for today's episode. Any final thoughts uh, for the subjects and, and whatnot? Chad, I mean, we didn't hear much from you this episode. What do you think about Roman's presentation? I think Roman killed it, man. Absolutely killed it. It was amazing. It was a great primer for, I think, where we're going to take off next week with some gold mining and beyond. But it was beautiful, man. I loved how we talked about the Redwoods and I'm mm. going to include a little more about the Redwoods next week. I got put together, but you know, you were right along with <laughs> this, this guy going to be included. We're going to include this guy in the, in the uh, episode. Oh, that, the, that guy will make it in there. Someone <laughs> know he will shout out to creature <laughs> replica. They make these really cool Sasquatch dog man and Yeti action figures. I scared Roman with that one up ep- one time before we started an episode. He was just zoomed in on the Bigfoot, but I peed. I peed a little bit. Oh, I'm looking forward to exploring oh, this area further. I, I'm I'm looking forward to some of Chad's slides yeah. and some maps because I've heard uh, the Emerald Triangle is an upside down triangle, which is interesting. I don't know if that has anything to do with anything, uh, but there's tons of stuff in this realm in this California north so much. northwest corner up here. So. Yeah, this is awesome. I'm excited to be here virtually uh, on this leg of our journey in esoteric America. And uh, yeah, any final thoughts, Tara or Roman, before we close this one out? Uh, um, stuff to think about and look at i appreciate um the research that you've done (laughs) so no not really i'm looking forward to next week though yeah nice yeah like one last thing i'd like to say romy yes romy said one thing that stuck with me the whole night and he said trees are antennas of consciousness communication Mm. for some reason i can't get that out of my head man that's beautiful even petrified trees yeah 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 potentially even more yeah there's because on the on the rising from the ashes where we've done a lot of uh druid deep dives and ancient celtic uh mysteries and stuff and like i just I've always had a connection with trees and trees are very, very, very special. And I think it's, it's important for us to venerate them more, you know, and, and to use them as like a, a a way to talk to our intuition to get maybe even deeper answers into something that's happening in our lives. You know, I think trees can help out a lot with that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Hug a tree. So hug a tree next week. You go with guys know who Julia Hill butterfly is by chance. Yeah. Yep. Oh, Tara. Okay. Okay, Next week we'll talk a little bit about Julia butterfly, the ultimate tree hugger. 
Oh, <laughs> did she? Okay, yeah. No, I'm excited. Uh, yeah, let's do it. Let's end it on that. All right. Thank you, everybody. Welcome to California. <laughs> Welcome mm. to California. And if you like crystals, as we talk about quartz, go and check out my wire wraps on the on the uh, Ko-Fi store. Shout out to yeah. Lou, who just picked up uh, two wire wraps. Shout out to Lou in uh, Idaho. But yeah, to Lou. happy to be here in mm-hmm. California. Roman, excellent presentation. Wise words from Chad. And awesome. uh, of course, we're... Off to the races here in the Emerald Triangle of California. We'll see you next week on Esoteric America.